So as we kick off our message today, I want to play a little family feud. I think all of us know what family feud is. I don't think I have to explain that to you. But I want to look at a family feud topic. What's the worst that could ever happen at a wedding celebration? So if you're watching Family Feud, you have to make a guess, and if it's on the board, it'll come up. And for us today, there are top seven answers. What are the worst things that can happen at a wedding celebration? So start to think, what would you guess, and what would be up on the screen for those who go through a wedding, and this is a disaster moment in their wedding? So here's the first one. Number seven, a parent objects. That would be really, really bad if a parent objects. Number six, bad weather. Imagine getting married like on a day like today, okay? Some of you have. Luckily, I think our wedding, we had good weather, right? Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Yes, we had great weather. It was great weather. Good weather. Great weather. Great weather. Great weather. Worst thing can happen after a wedding, forgetting what happened on your wedding day. Okay. (laughs) Number five, missing a ring. I get to be a part of weddings where you ask the best man for a ring. If they don't have it, that could be a bad thing. Number four, guests cancel. You plan on all this food. You spend all this money, and all of a sudden, these guests cancel. Number three, the dress doesn't fit. You've been planning, and you're like, hey, you just make this just a little bit smaller because I am going on the wedding diet. And then you put your wedding, it doesn't fit. That's, that would be tough for your dress not to fit. Number two, an ex shows up. Maybe that's happened for some of you. That's got to be awkward. And then number one, the bride or groom doesn't show up. That probably is the worst. If you were getting wedding and some married and some of these things happened at your wedding, it'd be really bad. But if you were in the first century, a, wedding, a, wedding, a married couple would say, well, you're missing something. And today, as we look at the Gospel of John, in John chapter 2, something happens that would have been one of the top answers on the board, the, one of the worst things that could happen at a wedding reception. In fact, we read this from Merrill Tenney. He says, in the closely knit communities of Jesus' day, such an heir would never be forgotten and would haunt the newly married couple all of their lives. It would have been the top answer on the board for this married couple. To know what that is, I want you to open your Bibles to John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at an incredible story, a wedding story today. And to see not only what happened in this wedding story for them, but how does that relate to us today. And I'm going to show you some life lessons along the way that I hope will encourage you. So let's get started. John chapter 2, verse 1. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. So let's pause. Back then, oftentimes marriages, uh, you didn't go out into a dating site or ask your friends to invite you to meet somebody else at a restaurant or a bar or something like that. A lot of the marriages back in Jesus' day were prearranged. And so there were two parts of this wedding celebration that would have happened back then. The first would have been this family, this groom's family would have identified a woman for their uh, son to marry. And this family would go and present this huge gift or this amount of money to the bride's family for them to be married. It was part of the customary thing that they did back then. And as a part of that marriage experience, they would present this gift, the family would agree, and then the woman would then stay home at their parents' house until finally they would get married. And I was thinking about this. Is that not like the greatest thing ever? 
If you have a daughter getting married and someone has to give you a large amount of money for your daughter to be married and they get to stay home at your house until the wedding night. I mean, there's nothing better than that. And this is what happened back then. You paid and then, of course, that, that bride would stay home. And then finally, there would come this public ceremony, this public expression of love where all these loved ones would come in for the final wedding celebration. And then they would have this incredible reception. And it would be amazing time. And that's what's happening with this wedding couple here. They've already gone through the first step. They've already presented the gift. Uh, the wife stayed home with her parents, and then finally the day has come where this wedding celebration with family and friends. And right away, John wants us to know that Jesus' mother was there. Now, Jesus' mother probably wasn't just a normal guest. We'll see later. She had to probably be a close friend or a family member of the couple getting married. And not only was Mary, Jesus' mother, invited, but we also have Jesus and his disciples were invited to the celebration. Now, if you think about it, do you really want to have Jesus and his disciples at your wedding? If you're looking through the list and you're trying to cut it down to a certain amount of people, and you want to have a really good time, and you want to dance, and you want to do everything that you would do at a wedding reception, and you think, well, Jesus is coming. Would he be a downer? Would he be so serious? Would you really want him and his disciples showing up? What if he does something that you're like, man, this is kind of weird. I don't want this person there. But they invite him. They realize they would rather have Jesus there than not have them there. And realize that Jesus isn't just this holy man who couldn't have fun. That Jesus wanted to have fun. He wanted to be invited until these moments, just like this wedding uh, reception that we see here. And if I have to give you one life lesson just from this, I want to encourage you to invite Jesus into every part of your life. Even the parts of your life you're like, I don't know if I really want Jesus to come to this. I don't know if I really want Jesus to be in this. Because what if he says no and I really want him to say yes? Or what if he's just too holy? But what we're going to see is Jesus blesses this couple in an incredible way. But what if Jesus wasn't there? What if Jesus wasn't at the wedding? They would have missed out on Jesus' blessing, missed out on his presence, missed out on what he did. And if he wasn't there, he could have never done that. What areas in your life that you haven't invited Jesus to that he wants to come to? Even some of the areas of your life are like, nah, I can't have Jesus come to this. You don't understand the way I've acted, the way I've treated other people, what's gone on in my home, what's gone on in my workplace, what's gone on in some of my friendships, what's gone on in my marriage. I don't want to invite Jesus there, but that's exactly where Jesus wants to be invited to. Because look what's happening if he's not there. And imagine if he was. Imagine those areas of your life where you're struggling right now. Invite him into those. He wants to be invited to that. I love what Spurgeon says even about this wedding reception. It says, Jesus comes to a marriage and gives his blessing there that we may know that our family life is under his care. What needs to be under Jesus' care right now that you have not invited him into? Whether it's your marriage, maybe it's your parenting, how you eat or exercise, with your finances, at your workplace, with some of your friendships. Like, what is the area that Jesus would love to be invited to if you allow him to? We move on in verse 3. The wine supply ran out. And during the festivities, so 
Jesus' mother told him right away, they have no more wine. I told you before that something happened at a wedding celebration. In this wedding celebration, that would have been one of the worst things to happen. And this is it right here. They ran out of wine. And back then, wine was even more customary to have at a wedding reception. Everybody drank it just like water. They weren't getting hammered with it, but it was something that they enjoyed to have. It was part of a celebration, just like the food was. And people were coming all around the different areas, traveling for days just to come to this wedding reception. And they were promised good food, promised good wine. And then all of a sudden, the wine has run out. Socially, they would have been made fun of. People would have, would have thought, man, don't you care about your guests? And at this point, we assume the bride and groom don't even know yet. Somehow Mary knows. That's why I was telling you before. She has to be close, a friend, a family. Someone tells her, look, this happened. And right away, what does she do? She goes to Jesus. They have no more wine. The second life lesson I want to tell you about this is whatever it is, whatever it is, take it to Jesus. Now, some of you are like, yeah, I know what that is. I'll take things to Jesus. When, though? After we've done everything we can, after we tried other people to help us, after we tried to grit it out with our own effort, after we've exhausted all other options, then do we bring it to Jesus or do we bring it to Jesus right away? Mary doesn't try all of these options. She doesn't worry. She doesn't freak out. She brings it right to Jesus, right away, because she knows that he, of all people, can do something about this tragedy that happened at this wedding celebration. He's the one that can spare them this social outcry. He's the one that can fix this. And she goes to him right away. What are the things in your life that you're trying to fix on your own? The things that you say, you know what, tomorrow is coming, it'll be better then. Or I know if I just discipline myself and I do these certain things, then I'll finally get this thing together. Or finally this relationship will be what I want it to. Or finally I can get where I want to be. And then Jesus, if I can't, I'm going to run to you. Jesus is really gracious. You can run to him anytime, even if he's your last option. But I tell you, you will spare a lot of hurt a lot of pain, a lot of disappointment, a lot of your fears and worries that you carry around all the time because you think you have to handle this, you have to control it, you have to fix it, it can go right to Jesus and you can leave it there and say, okay, Jesus, whatever you want to do with it. What are you not taking to Jesus that you need to this morning? He has his arms open for you. Jesus says, dear woman, that's not our problem, he replied. He said, my time has yet come. Now, at first, you're like, whoa, Jesus, it's a little bit disrespectful. Calling your mom woman? I know my mom's here. If I was like, hey, woman, help me with this, she'd be like, excuse me? <laughs> I mean, it seems super disrespectful, doesn't it? But it's not. In fact, we realize he doesn't say, hey, mom, it's not our problem. My time hasn't come yet. He doesn't address her as mom. He addresses her as woman. It's really helpful what William Barclay says here. So far from being a rough and discourteous way of address, it was a title of respect. 
We have no way of speaking in English, which exactly renders it. But it is better to translate it lady, which gives at least the courtesy in it. He's respectful. He's compassionate. He's addressing her, but not as mom. Because this is bigger than the son-daughter relationship. In fact, there's two things happening in this verse. The first says, this isn't our problem. And he's right. Maybe Mary's a close family or friend, but they're not the parents of the bride and groom. They're not the bride and groom themselves. They don't have to take care of this problem. But Jesus will. We'll come back to that in a moment. But when he says, my time has yet come, this is bigger than somebody running out of wine. He's referring to something so much more. He's talking about revealing himself for the first time as who he really is. People know him as Jesus. They may know him as a rabbi and a good teacher and a good person, but they don't know yet that he is the Messiah. God himself coming in the flesh. And he says, my time has yet to come. And when it is, you can't tell me, dear woman. This is bigger than you. This is bigger than me. This is bigger than a wedding celebration. It's what my father says to do. And when he tells me to do it, then I will reveal myself. I think of what the gospel John says a little bit later in verse 5. Where he says, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus says, I understand what's happening here. I understand how this can look for the married couple. I understand that there's nothing else to drink here now. I understand why you're coming to me because you know of all the people here, I can fix it. But I'm not quite ready to reveal who I am yet. And when the Father tells me to do it, you better believe that I will. Well, something happens. Not because Mary, his mom, says to do so, but it's at this moment in this setting where Jesus must have heard from the Father say, no, this is the time. I know you haven't heard from me yet, so you've been waiting, but now the time has come. But Mary, she doesn't know that. She doesn't know that yet. The wedding couple doesn't know that yet. It sounds like Jesus isn't going to do anything at all. But it's interesting. Mary tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. If he says he can do something about it, do whatever he tells you. If he's not going to do anything about it, and it's the couple's fault, and it's their, uh, they have to do something to fix the situation, they must. But whatever Jesus says, he knows best. So do whatever he says. Well, look what happens. Standing nearby, there were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold about 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jar had been filled, he said... Now dip some out of it and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. Now put yourself at the scene and imagine you're one of the servants. There's these six stone jars, each holding about 20 to 30 gallons each. And they're filled with this water, the ceremonial water that Jews used for cleansing. 
And Jesus says, you see those big things right there? They hold about 180 gallons or so. Think of 180 gallon milk jugs, 180 of those. All of those I want filled up. And the servants are like, okay. Now you gotta remember, Jesus has never revealed himself. People think he's just another person, especially these servants. Mary knows he's not. She's not sure what he's gonna do. He does whatever the father wants. These servants are just like, all right, I'm gonna fill these waters. They're not thinking, oh man, this dude is going to turn this water into wine and we're gonna be front row to this miracle. They have no idea what is going to happen. But they do it anyways. Because there's something in Jesus where they can't help but think, I need to follow what he has to say. He knows something more than I do. And that's the life lesson that I want you to take away from this part. No matter what, no matter how crazy, no matter how bizarre, no matter when the cards are stacked against you, when it seems impossible, no matter what it is, do what Jesus says. There are some of you at work where if you really do what Jesus says to do, to always tell the truth, to always be a person of integrity, to never lie, that could literally cost you your job or a chance at moving up the ladder because you know you may have to fudge numbers here or treat a person this way in order to grow up the ladder. Jesus says, don't do that. Do what he says. I was thinking today, I was trying to tell my child kindly at first, please get your cereal, please do this, because I have to go to work, you have basketball, there's a lot going, he just would not do it, he's like, dad, I don't want to do it, I'm tired, I'm like, well, then you have to go to bed early, I don't want to do that, and he keeps fighting me on what he thinks is right, but I see the bigger picture, I know what has to happen for him to get out the door, for him to get to basketball, to do what I know is best for him. He doesn't see it that way. He wants to just go lay on the couch and not do anything, and I understand that part too. But I'm like, dude, just do what I say because I know better than you. I know you don't think I know better than you, but I know better than you. These servants didn't know at the moment they would be part of a first miracle of Jesus. These servants had no idea. They just did what Jesus asked them to do because he could see everything while these guys just saw what's right in front of them. There are things in your life right now that you have to trust God for because he's telling you to do something. You're like, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I should. You want to fight against God. I don't want that. That's not what I want to do today. And Jesus is like, I'm just telling you, if you trust me, I know you don't see the next thing, but just trust me. Obey me. Do what I tell you to do. And something more incredible, something you can't even fathom, could happen to you. Did you know that Jesus, when he turns this water into wine, it's about 180 gallons, which is equivalent to over 900 bottles of wine. We don't think there were 900 people there and still had to have been a whole bottle per person. <laughs> it was more. More than they could have even imagined. Imagine if the servants were like, this dude's off his rocker. We're going to go ask the bride and groom what to do. They'll know what to do. They would have missed out on something more than they can even imagine. 
Look what happens. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. Usually in a wedding, they would serve the cheap stuff in the end. But the massive ceremonies, not knowing what happened, said, you've reserved the best for the end. These servants, Mary, trusted Jesus to come through. He does so in a way that's miraculous. No one even thought it was possible. He dips in, tastes the wine, and it was better than anything they had served. If Jesus is in it, the best is yet to come. If Jesus is in the situation, and even in the moment, you're like, there's no way. There's no way. If he's in it, and you trust him in that very moment, in the end, he'll bring the best for you. That's what we call hope. In the hardest times of your life, if you trust him now, in the end, in the end, it's going to even be better than you even expected because you're waiting on his time, and you're trusting to do now, even though you want to do that later. You don't want to do it at all. The best is yet to come with Jesus. Some of you going through such hard things, empty things, so many things. You're like, God, what are you doing right now? I don't know. But if you trust him today, the best is yet to come. The miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. It's one of seven times we'll see in the Gospel of John. This is the first time. And in his disciples finally believed in him. They would followed him, and Jesus said, hey, here's who I am. And then they saw him turn water to wine. Oh, man, this is him. <laughs> it was a miraculous sign. When you see a sign pointing to something, it's telling you to go this way. It's telling you that there's a destination that this sign is pointing to. It's not the sign that is the greatest thing. It's what it's pointing to. If you're going to Cleveland and it says, go right here on Route 2, 60 miles, and you say, here we are in Cleveland. No, it's a sign pointing you to where to go. And then when you get there, that's where you're supposed to be. He says this miraculous sign, it wasn't about water to wine. That was incredible. People at the party would have been going crazy. But the disciples, they understood. This is bigger than this. This is pointing to something that we've been waiting for our entire lives. The best truly is yet to come because he's showing us the way to that. Here's what it points to. First of all, it points to the fact that Jesus will do something about our problem, even though it's not his problem. The wine was not Jesus' problem. He was just there, just like everybody else. He could have said, no, I don't want to. My time hasn't come. The Father says, I'm just supposed to sit here. And he could have stayed out of it. But once the Father says, do something about it, he does something about it. And that's what he does for you and I. When the father says to Jesus, Jesus, you're going to go and you're going to live a perfect life and then you're going to die on the cross and then you're going to resurrect three days later, he wasn't doing it for himself. He got nothing out of it. But he did it for us. It was pointing to something greater for us. He got involved when he could have said, you know what, this isn't 
my issue. They're the ones that sinned. They're the ones that did all this. They're the ones that messed up the earth. They figure it out. Just like the bride and groom should have figured it out. But Jesus gets involved because he cares, because he loves, because it points to something even greater, that the sin problem that we have, Jesus gets involved and does something with it. The second thing that I just absolutely love is that it points to the fact that Jesus is all about transformation. Water to wine. It still held its water component, didn't change altogether, but it changed, it transformed into something different. Jesus wants to take the broken part of you, take that part of you and not start over, but to transform you, to change the parts that you don't like about yourself and transform them into where he can see himself in those things. Those parts of you as a parent, those parts of you as a spouse, those parts of you as a coworker, those parts of you as a friend, those parts of you inside that you just can't change, he will. He can change water to wine. He can change those aspects of you if you take it to him. Imagine if Mary didn't take it to him. Imagine if they didn't get Jesus involved. They would have to figure it out themselves. You don't have to figure it out yourself. Those parts of yourself that you cringe thinking about, he wants to change those things into something different. It's still you. It's still your personality. It's still all the good things about you. But those parts of you that you don't like, that you're ashamed about, that you wish God would just scrap and start over. No, no, no. He'll just take those and change those. And it's something that you can't recognize, but you still do. He's in the business of transformation, just like we see here. The third part of this, it points to the fact that Jesus' glory is in his compassion, humility, and generosity. Jesus, he got dirty. He did something. He cared about those people. He loved those people. Just like for us on the cross, his humility, his compassion, his kindness for us, he does something to the point where he would die for us. The greatest thing about Jesus, we read in Philippians 2, is that though he was God, he gave himself up for the sake of you and I. He cares that much about you. And the fourth thing is, and I love this, it points to an even greater wedding feast and celebration. If you go all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation, which we studied last summer, the summer before, I should say, and you see how it ends, Christ follower, we win. When the best is yet to come, Jesus is like, not just in your life, but even in the afterlife. And when you open up to the book of Revelation, which tells us about the end things of the world, we win. I love what it talks about as a part of this celebration as Christ followers. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb. There's a wedding feast and his bride has prepared herself. And the angel said to me, write this, 
Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, those are true words that come from God. You give yourself to Jesus. You take yourself to him. You let him die for you. You accept that gift of grace. He changes you. In the end, you get to be with him forever. And then at the end of all time, what is it? A wedding celebration. You get to be with Jesus and him with you for the rest of eternity. And you celebrate with good food and good drink. And you get to be with him without painting or suffering or all those things forever because the best is yet to come with Jesus. And because the best is yet to come then, we can live with hope now. We can look forward now. What he has done for that wedding couple, he will do in our lives. Jesus could have been left out of that completely. He didn't have to be invited to the wedding. He didn't have to have a chance to get more wine and change the water to wine, but he was invited and look what he did. It starts with an invitation. And then if you do that, well, the best is yet to come. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for those just here today who just feel like they don't have anything. They feel worthless. They feel lonely. They feel like no one's noticing them. They feel like nothing is ever going to happen in their lives. I pray that this story would be encouragement to them. That all that we have to do is just bring ourselves to you, Jesus. And then you will do incredible things. You will change the very things about ourselves that we don't like and make us into the person that you want for us, the person that we want to be. And then in the end, because of what you've done for us, you invite us to be with you for eternity. God, give us that perspective today. We invite you into our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a great Sunday.